as well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer and you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep all you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party that's beer the number five the number two dot com slash party and cover just £5.95 for the postage and you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep you don't even need to leave the house think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers each month beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world recent cases have included beer from the alps new zealand the usa ireland korea and germany so if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different beer 52's craft beer discovery club is for you and if you do change your mind you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. Today's guest is Joanna Cherry from the Scottish National Party. As well as being an MP, you may know that Joanna is also a QC and was instrumental in bringing that case to the Supreme Court where they overruled the Prime Minister and ruled that he had unlawfully prorogued Parliament. Joanna Cherry, along with Gina Miller and others, was critical in getting that case in front of the Supreme Court. So we talk about that uh, and about the benefit that having a legal background has for a political career. We talk about a whole load of other things as well, as you would imagine, Scottish independence, not just um, about whether um, current situations may have made it more or less likely or more or less desirable, but also just about the Scottish National Party and about its future policy direction and about the ideas within the party and about how all political parties manage tension, dissent, different ideas. Uh, So it's a really good political discussion about um, the balance between unity and having a vibrant political culture. Uh, I also began by asking Joanna um, about the role of an MP at a time like this, about how easy or indeed difficult it is to discharge your duties as an MP remotely. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm subject to the same lockdown rules as everybody else in Scotland. Uh, we don't have special categories of people who are who are not subject to the rules, like Dominic Cummings. You know, we're all <laughs> up here, a very egalitarian country. Um, so I have been working remotely from home, um, and my staff are all working remotely. We had sort of, my office manager had anticipated this was going to happen. There's a lot of discussion about it. So he had distributed some of our technology from the office. I've got my office phone home with me and things like that. Um, So we've been working remotely. Uh, Initially, it was incredibly busy. People had, constituents had so many diverse questions about the lockdown, problems arising from their situation people who were really quite concerned um, about how they were going to manage financially, emotionally. So we were very involved in advising individual people and also about connecting, really forming connections in the constituency. One of the things as an MP, especially if you've been doing the job for a while, is you have a good overview of what's happening on the ground in your constituency. So, uh, for example, I was able to connect together two voluntary organisations who normally share the same building but are working remotely at the moment 
who needed a particular service during um, the during the lockdown. One of them was able to provide the service. The other one didn't realise that because normally they'd just pop across the corridor, have a cup of coffee and realise that. But they didn't have that overview of the situation that I had. So that's been, although it's been frustrating being stuck at home, because myself and my staff have this overview of what's going on, we've been able to provide some good connections, a couple of um, distilleries and a beer brewing company in the constituency have been making hand sanitizer, connecting them with voluntary organisations. So that's the sort of thing we've been doing and obviously advising people on their financial situation, lots of small businesses emailing us, um, lots of people unsure about whether they should be working or not that sort of thing there's a really interesting point there anyone who's been to edinburgh will know the beautiful specific smell that the breweries create in the air so does edinburgh now smell of hand sanitizer instead of beer (laughs) well i don't really know because i haven't been very far from home Uh, but yeah no i mean i've got uh, the famous cali brewery in my constituency and i've also got a a great little craft brewery called the edinburgh beer factory that's award-winning and and both um and i've also got north british um distillery which is blended whiskey so um yeah quite a variety (laughs) and and just in terms of edinburgh because obviously it's it's a major city what has the infection rate been like there compared to other places in scotland and the uk well I'm not going to say Edward's got off lightly because for anyone who's lost a loved one, um, that is not something that we, that's not something I want to say. Um, you know, I think we've had the same, we've experienced the same problems um, in, in care homes as across the United Kingdom. Uh, I think the NHS response in Edinburgh has been fantastic. Um, I have constituents who are NHS workers and also care workers that have had the same concerns as, uh, as workers across the United Kingdom about their own safety and the availability of PPE, but also an incredibly selfish, selfless rather, and a brave attitude towards the crisis. I mean, we're, the First Minister has just announced that we're moving into the first phase of, of lockdown, uh, out of lockdown uh, here in Scotland. And I think that that's a reflection of the fact that she's satisfied that things have fallen back to a stage now where it's safe to begin doing that. So I wouldn't say Edinburgh has got off lightly, not at all. But I think one thing about Edinburgh is um, people in Edinburgh are quite law-abiding. I think people have stuck by the lockdown in a fairly law-abiding fashion. But then, of course, it's easier for some people than others. You know, if you if you live in a house with plenty of space and a garden, it's easier to be in lockdown than it is if you live in a, in a small high-rise flat overcrowded with kids who need to get out yeah so you mentioned the law there prior to Dominic Cummings's trips to Durham Barnard Castle back to Durham and back to London the biggest legal debate we were having prior to the coronavirus coronavirus was around Brexit and you were instrumental in getting that Supreme Court ruling that the government of the UK had uh, unlawfully prorogued Parliament so obviously you're a QC so how do you end up Getting in a in a crew with Gina Miller and Jolian Mormon and the others. How did that how did that group first coalesce? Well, I had previously worked with Jolian Mon and um, a cross-party group of Scottish parliamentarians, two SNP, two Green, and two Labour, um, when we took the British government all the way to the um, European Court of Justice in Luxembourg 
to secure the ruling that Article 50 could be unilaterally revoked, which, of course, without, without that, a people's vote would have been pointless. Now, we're obviously, we're beyond that now, sadly, and it, it doesn't look like Brexit will be reversed for the whole of the UK. Scotland, obviously, is a slightly different position. So I was all, I'd already worked with Jolyon fairly closely on uh, that case, and uh, we kept in touch. And then um, we uh, were corresponding about the prorogation and uh, we decided to put together a group of cross-party parliamentarians to challenge the prorogation. And we decided to do it in the Scottish courts um, where we had started our litigation in relation to Article 50. So that's how I got involved in that. And um, that's how I ended up being the, the lead petitioner um, was obviously there were I think it was seventy five members of parliament and a handful of peers within that, and people from the Labour Party, uh, lots of my SNP colleagues, people from the Labour Party, Greens, Lib Dems. So it, it was quite a cross party coalition. Quite a few QCs in 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 the Westminster Parliament. Yourself, Keir Starmer, Lucy Fraser, Geoffrey Cox. Do you have a kind of QCs club? Do you is there a kind of <laughs> lawyers group, that, informal or otherwise? Uh, well, formally, there's an all-party parliamentary group on the rule of law, um, and that's where the lawyers tend to hang out. It's not terribly cool, as you might imagine. Um, but I have to say that it's just over five years since I was first elected, and I did find that going to Westminster as a lawyer, I had all, I already knew Dominic Grieve professionally. I'd met him at sort of joint Scottish and English bar events. I didn't know Keir Starmer, but obviously I knew of him because he had been very highly respected as the director of public prosecutions in England. Um, so very quickly, uh, I mean, two things. I already knew Dominic. The um, Back in 2015, when I was elected, very before, in addition to Brexit being at the, well, in addition to the prospect of an EU referendum being at the top of the agenda, there was also... Uh, David Cameron also wanted to repeal the Human Rights Act. Famously, that's how Dominic Grieve and he had parted company. Dominic Grieve had previously been the Attorney General. And so I made my maiden speech actually five years ago today on the importance of preserving the Human Rights Act for the whole of the United Kingdom. And very quickly, I got involved in a cross-party campaign to preserve the Human Rights Act, which involved prominent backbenchers like Dominic Grieve. And so I got to know Dominic and Keir quite well, quite quickly. But I have to say that, and, and other um, barristers in the House of Commons, I have to say, you know, a lot of them went out of their way to make me feel welcome, to invite me to events at the English Bar. Um, and I was very lucky in that respect. So, you know, there's a sort of professional brotherhood, sisterhood that goes beyond party politics, I think. You know, much as Dominic Grieve and I might disagree about a lot of socioeconomic policy, We'll be very much in agreement on civil liberties issues and uh, the, obviously the European Union, famously. It's important to have a parliaments in all countries that are, that are diverse and reflect the population. But the last few years have really demonstrated the power of having strong legal minds inside, particularly the House of Commons. Um, I wonder if people are less um, squeamish now about putting letters like QC after their name in Parliament than they might have been for a while, that actually it's, it's a good advert for, for law and for politics to show that you can get such change done by having done both jobs. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, when I was elected as part of the 56 SNP MPs in 
2015. Part of the strength of that group was the diversity of our backgrounds. So a lot of us were coming to politics for the first time, but with backgrounds in the law, medicine, teaching, uh, business. And we also had some people who had previously distinguished careers as parliamentarians, people like Angus Robertson and Alex Salmond, and also colleagues who had been MSPs or, or councillors. So we had that political experience, but we also had that depth of, of life experience. And I think a lot, a lot of, I think the public appreciate that in a politician. You know, I'm not saying that we, there's not room for people who've gone through the sort of the route of student politician, researcher, member of a devolved parliament, local authority, then Westminster. I'm not saying there's not a place for those people, but they need to be balanced out with people who've had a career out with politics. It doesn't have to be law. Um, but the thing about the letters QC, I know some people think that maybe I'm a bit of a snooty cow because I put the letters after my name, but it's really hard to get to be a QC. You know, at the bar, you have to jump through a lot of hoops. And uh, once you've got those letters, you're not going to let go of them in a hurry. Um, <laughs> I, don't blame you. Really. I don't blame you. I'm tempted to put GCSE after mine. I think any achievement counts. Um, I, I don't blame for you. Sure. For, yeah. I think mine was probably more um, the period that I had working for the Labour Party where people perhaps might have been um, too modest, perhaps, and they might have, they might have um, misread the public mood. I think it's important that people know that you have that qualification because then you speak um people know that you're coming from the experience and, and the two letters are a very quick way to let people know you know what you're on about and when it comes to law you mentioned the 56 smp mp i mean it's incredible that that now almost feels like ancient history and it was like I know. less than five years ago so much has changed um and, and you're right as well as the depth of um experience that you had uh, and all the talents that were in that parliamentary group one thing you also had was unity in a way that perhaps the House of Commons hasn't seen in my lifetime, that as a parliamentary block, um, you were watertight. Um, now, obviously, that is hugely impressive, and it makes you almost impossible opponents. But do you think there's a danger of that sometimes, that actually parties need to be seen to have some sort of internal debate um, so that the public can see that the, the party is vibrant and brimming with ideas? Yes. I think parties do need internal debate. I think internal debate is healthy. I mean, you don't want to end up like a basket case, as the Labour Party has been in recent years, and the Tories were on the verge of being, maybe for a while during Brexit. You know, but I think healthy internal debate—that's how you, that's how you create policy. That's how you move forward. That's how ideas come. What I'll say about the sense of unity with the fifty-sixes. I suppose that was a particular thing because it came on the back of having lost the independence referendum. And um, when many, many of us thought we were just about on the verge of winning it, we lost it. But then there was a few days of depression. Then there was this in incredible bounce in the membership of the SNP uh, when Alec decided to stand down and Nicola took over. You know, there was this huge bounce on the back of, I think, what was a very, whatever... People's views of Alex Salmon, people would universally say it was a very graceful decision to for him to step aside and say someone else needs to take over. And Nicola certainly, certainly, certainly hit the ground running. And so there was this huge growth in, in our support. And we had this huge sense of purpose in going to Westminster, which was very much that, OK, um, we've lost the referendum, 
But, you know, we've been, various promises were made, which we believed led to the loss of the referendum. We're here to see that those promises are delivered. Of course, they never were delivered. And we're here also to be a strong voice for Scotland. So there was real impetus behind us and as, as our unity. And I suppose we're a bit different from other um, political parties in the United Kingdom, which exist primarily to win elections and form governments so that they can advance their ideas and their beliefs and their policies. The SNP exists really not just to win elections and form governments, but to, that's a pretty recent thing for us, winning elections and forming governments, but we exist to affect major structural change. And it's not just constitutional change, not just change, not just independence, but also major socio-economic change. You know, our party very much is looking at doing things very differently in the future. And, and you know, that's very much the the view of the yes movement, which, you know, is, is the strength behind our party, which is not just winning independence for the sake of it, we're winning independence to do things differently and have a different approach, a different socioeconomic approach. What's the mood in the party now? Because on the face of it, the party is, has never been stronger. Um, you know, there was a slight... Uh, fall back in the parliamentary representation in 2017 that that swelled again in 2019 if you look at any opinion poll now about the forthcoming Holyrood elections the SNP is miles and miles ahead after more than 10 years in government is more popular than any other party in in uh, the UK in 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 the places where it stands the handling of the crisis compared to the UK government is far more favorable towards the Scottish government in Scotland yeah. And yet there is a sense that perhaps, and maybe it's just because the first time that this has happened, and, and obviously this has all happened very quickly, but it feels as if though at the point of maximum opportunity in a way, things are perhaps more delicate than they've been. And a party that has always been for, in recent years so unified in public feels as if though it's trying to have an internal debate at a point where that internal debate might actually put the ultimate prize at risk. How do you manage that? that tantalising, delicate situation. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the word unprecedented is a bit overused at the moment. <laughs> but I think the where the SNP is at the moment as a party really is unprecedented. As you say, we're in our third term of government at Holyrood, but we're still riding very high in the polls. Um, all the polls indicate that we will win the Scottish election this time next year. We've got a leader whose approval ratings totally eclipse the other UK parties' leaders' approval ratings, never mind the Scottish ones. Um, and uh, there's been an opinion poll has come out this week from Ipsos Mori, commissioned for the BBC, which shows that 55% suggests that 55% of people in Scotland want another independence referendum within the next five years. 63% overall want one. Um, and independence is pretty steadily riding at just above, the desire for independence itself is pretty steadily riding at above just 50%. So we are, in, we are on the face of it in a really strong position, but I think it's really important that we're not complacent about that. And I think the real question for the SNP is what are we going to do with that strong position? What, how do we use it? What, what, what do we do with it? You know, the elections are, are the election for the Scottish Parliament is, is less than 12 months away. And um, it's clear from the opinion polls that, that, that there, there's a mood in Scotland for constitutional change still. But I think also people are open to wider structural change. And 
in Scotland, independence has never just been an end in itself, as I said a moment ago, but a means to an end. And so I think our party has to make sure that it goes into the next election, not just addressing the question of how we get a second independence referendum, which is a tad problematic, but also addressing you know, what, what we do with independence when we get it. So we need to have a strong policy platform. And that's why people like myself have been arguing that really we need to have more debate within the party and that debate needs to be facilitated in such a way that it leads to firm policy outcomes and things that we can put in our manifesto. Um, but I mean, I think the good news is our, our deputy leader, Keith Brown, before the coronavirus crisis uh, struck, he had arranged to hold a series of what we call national assemblies within the SNP policy debates, as well as our conference. And although our spring conference had to go off and these national assemblies had to go off, and there must be a question mark over whether we can have our autumn conference, certainly in a in a in the format we normally do because of the requirement, I think there'll be an ongoing requirement for social distancing. But I had written to the national secretary suggesting that we look at taking some of these debates online, a bit like the English, the UK, the Citizens' Assembly on Climate Change has gone all online during the coronavirus. They've taken their debate online. Uh, um, the Constitution Unit at University College London have written about this, so I made a proposal to the party that we should look at doing this, and I'm pleased to say that the Deputy Leader Keith Brown is taking that forward, and it's, it's been looked at very seriously. So I think, you know, the SNP, we felt that we had to be very united because of our cause, and also I think there's a, a degree whereby we feel sometimes that we have to be united in the face of what some people fear, feel is unfair media coverage, and you know, if you look back at the Indie Ref, there was only one national newspaper in Scotland that supported independence when, you know, nearly half the population did. So we've always felt we were at, we had a bit of an uphill struggle um, in some respects. So we had to be all the more united because of that. But I think now there's much more of a mood in the party, certainly in the grassroots, for some real serious policy discussions about the platform we take forward. And, and what are the fault lines in those policy discussions? In most parties, it's left and right. The, you know, the debates that we see in the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. And traditionally in the SNP, we've understood it through the gradualist fundamentalist uh, divide. Um, those are, who are more pragmatic about the way that you get to an independent Scotland. But but are there left-right tensions in the party? And, and would that be a better way to understand the current policy debate? Well, just to address the gradualist fundamentalist point, first of all, I mean, it was only when, when when Alex Salmon took over as leader and embraced gradualism that the party really started to advance. And Alex saw the opportunities that devolution afforded. Now, there were some people in the Labour Party, uh, to quote George Robertson, who thought devolution would kill independence stone dead. Alex thought quite the reverse. He thought if you give people a taste of power, if you govern well, then they'll want more. And he's turned out to be right about that. And certainly I, I find it, I've been a bit exasperated on recent occasions when some people have tried to characterise me and indeed Alec as fundamentalists because just rewriting history. I've ne- I mean, I was in the Labour Party for years and the campaign for a Scottish Assembly, so I've always been a gradualist. And um, so has the former leader and, and so is the current leader. So I don't really think there's a big divide gradualist fundamentalists. There are people, members of the party and members of the independence movement, who are desperate for an independence referendum. And of course, before the coronavirus struck, it was the avowed intention of the Scottish government to hold an independence referendum this year. 
So in a sense, we don't really necessarily have a gradualist fundamentalist divide. There are certainly left-right divides in the party. And I, I would see myself as being more on, on the left of the party. Um, some of us had reservations about the Sustainable Growth Commission um, under Andrew Wilson's leadership. And I think, you know, there's there's uni we're united now in the party, left and right, and thinking that will have to be revisited, particularly in the light of the current crisis and the way in which you might want to build our economy and our society again after this health crisis. So I think there's, there's a measure of agreement about that needing um, to be addressed. So I'm not really sh sure that there's a big left-right divide. I think, I think one of the problems with policy development in Scotland is we don't have the same number of think tanks as you'll find in London. And, uh, you know, I think Scotland could do with more think tanks. I mean, things have improved a little uh, in recent years. We have, um, obviously, we have Reform Scotland, which sort of sits in the centre of the centre-right. You have the Common Wheel, which sits on the left. IPPR are up in Scotland now and operate in Scotland. And you also have the Scottish Centre for European Relations that's done some really good work on Brexit-related issues and how an independent Scotland might go about um exceeding to the EU and also about how a devolved Scotland can have a continuing relationship with the European Union or even and a policy towards it even if, if we're not actually in it. So there is some quite good think tank work going on in Scotland at the moment. I mean I, I, I love the idea that the German parties have and the major German parties have their own think tank attached. You know I would love to see that in the SNP but it, that's not going to happen overnight. But I think the, the party needs to do more work on policy and draw on the resources, the work that's been done in Scotland already in order to, to formulate our policy going forward. Just on the Sustainable Commission, the Sustainable Growth Commission report that you mentioned, obviously coronavirus has changed policy everywhere in the world, so it's not unique to that. But it felt like the, the Commission was uh, certainly intended to move the debate on within independent circles from particularly oil, given what happened to the oil price, and that has obviously been compounded by the coronavirus uh, crisis, and just talk about what the offer would be next time. I mean, are you saying that you still... I mean, is there anything in the Sustainable Growth Report that you would keep? Are, are there certain things... I, I mean, the, the ones that caught the headline were kind of accepting that oil is not going to be a basis for the economy and, and then... Not and then moving to an independent Scottish currency as well. Think, I don't think anyone. I don't think anyone questions that you know oil can't be a basis for the Scottish economy going forward. Uh, you know, before the coronavirus crisis, we were talking about the climate change crisis, and that in some ways is a bigger crisis than coronavirus. But you know, it's not really a big problem for Scotland to have to move gradually away from oil and gas because we have such fantastic resources of renewable energy. So yeah, there's there's much in the Growth Commission with which I would uh, agree, but I'm also very interested in the ideas being put forward by the Commonweal in relation to a new Green Deal, and also in relation to what some people call resilient resilience economics, and Scotland perhaps becoming more self-sufficient in relation to things like food supply, manufacturing of PPE. My colleague Ivan McKee's done a fantastic work on that in the Scottish Government during the... During um, during the crisis. But I think, you know, let's be honest, currency was a really big issue in the last independence referendum. And uh, I've spoken to some people in the business community who feel that perhaps the Sustainable Growth Commission was a bit too hung up on that question and that maybe that shouldn't be 
that is not necessarily the primary question that has to be answered going forward. I mean, I think some, you know, so I've heard some people say the currency was the big issue in the 2014 referendum. The big issue of the next independence referendum will be whether or not we have to have a hard border with England. Mm. And that's something that um, the party needs to address. I mean, you know, when I was on the doorsteps last year campaigning in the 2019 general election, um, in my constituency, I spoke to a lot of people, particularly in middle class areas, but not exclusively in middle class areas, who had voted no in 2014, um, were very angry about Brexit, uh, very uh, not at all keen on a Boris Johnson administration, and really very keen on the very keen on being persuaded to independence but still needing some serious questions answered and generally speaking i would before the corona crisis i would have identified those questions as being the economic case for independence people needing reassurance about that people wanting a bit more detailed information about how an independent scotland would accede to the european union how long would that take and also uh, how will we manage our border with england because people don't want a hard border um, you know, they don't want a hard border um, between Scotland and England. They don't want a hard border running down Scotland's seaboards with um, the North and the Republic, or indeed with Europe. You know, people who people who are inclined to vote SNP in Scotland, that's, that's not what they want. So these are questions that we need to address. And I, I think, you know, the answers exist. But I think the party needs to do more work on, on packaging those answers and presenting them to the public. And again, before the coronavirus crisis hit, uh, the first minister, first minister had made an announcement at the end of the 31st of January when she made her speech marking Brexit Day, uh, saying that she was going to be bringing forward some policy papers in these areas and also talking about setting up another constitutional convention in Scotland, which I had been very much a proponent of, because I think, you know, when you're going to achieve any major constitutional change, you want to take as many people with you as possible, and you want to work cross-party, you want to try and step over the party boundaries. And there, there are people in the Labour Party and the Lib Dems, and even odd, the odd Conservative who are interested in the idea of Scottish independence. It's easier for them to become involved in that through a, through a convention than than through something that's necessarily led by the SNP. So I think, you know, Nicola Sturgeon had been making some major steps in the right direction there, but then, of course, the crisis hit, and it, it's right that she put um, the idea, you know, she paused the campaigning, she paused the planning for a referendum, and clearly there can't be a referendum this year. I mean, that's out, out of the question that there can't be one. And so very much the focus of our efforts now has to be the election next year and securing as big a mandate as possible in that uh, election. But we also need to address the thorny issue of how we hold another independence referendum, because, of course, Boris Johnson has said no to the sort of constitutional mechanism that uh, David Cameron agreed with Alex Salmon back in 2012. You've been quite vocal in, in challenging, perhaps, the, the legitimacy of or, or the legal basis of the Westminster government's view, the UK government's view, that it's basically when the Prime Minister decides you can have a referendum. I mean, you, you're highly yeah. legally experienced. What um, probability of a positive outcome would you would you predict if you if you were to challenge that? Well, what, I mean, how I would answer that question is to say, 
there is a respectable body of legal opinion in Scotland that it is by no means clear that the Holyrood Parliament doesn't have the competence to hold a referendum on the question of Scottish independence. The union is reserved to Westminster under um, uh, under the Scotland Act, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can't hold a referendum on a question to give a Scottish government a mandate to negotiate um, with Westminster. And one of the possibilities which the First Minister herself is considering, although obviously it's on hold at the moment, is the possibility of introducing a bill into Holyrood to hold such a referendum. Um, if the bill passed Holyrood, as it would do, because there's a pro-independence majority in Holyrood with the SNP and the Greens, um, then uh, you could either wait for somebody to challenge it, I think it'd be quite likely that the British government would challenge its legality, or indeed Scotland's top law officer, the Lord Advocate, could under the Scotland Act refer it to the Supreme Court for an opinion uh, as to its legitimacy. And if if you won the court case and it was legitimate, then you would have a legitimate referendum. If you lost, I don't think you'd be any further back than where we are at uh, the moment. And uh, I'm aware that um, these possibilities are being looked at and that nothing has been ruled out by my colleagues in the leadership of, of the party and my colleagues in, in the Scottish government. That's the legal element to it. What does your political antenna tell you about what the public reaction inside Scotland might be about pursuing a referendum in that route and the risks it might present to actually winning that referendum? Well, you see, I wouldn't be advocating pursuing the referendum until you'd checked with the court that it was legal. So, I mean, you know, I mean, the idea that I, as a lawyer, would advocate a wildcat referendum is kind of a bit silly, really. You know, I spent most of last year trying to make sure that Boris Johnson kept within the rules. So that that's not... That's not what I'm advocating. What I'm advocating here at this moment, at this stage, is that we um, attempt to hold a legitimate referendum by passing the legislation and testing it in the courts. And then if the court says, yeah, that's a legitimate referendum, that's within the competence, I think that um, it'd be very hard for our opponents to uh, boycott the referendum. If the Supreme Court said it's legitimate, then it's going to be pretty hard. And I also think in that in that context, you might bring British government to the negotiating table to reach an agreement a bit like the Edinburgh Agreement that was reached in 2012. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon's absolutely right when she says that's the gold standard. Of course it is. And um, of course we would like to be able to do it with that kind of agreement, which agrees not only that the referendum itself is legitimate, but that both sides will respect the outcome. But I'm afraid, as we've seen in recent days, um, you're not in Boris Johnson, you're not dealing with um, a leader uh, who necessarily respects due process and there's really no respect in the current Conservative administration for the fact that Scottish voters have repeatedly voted for very, very different outcomes uh, than uh, England. And, you know, Scotland's not a region of England. Scotland is a separate nation. One of the oldest, was one of the oldest nation states in Europe, went into this union voluntarily and I think the prince the British constitution recognizes the principle that if the majority of Scots want to leave they should be allowed to do so you know it's not a hostage situation but from the way that Boris Johnson behaved you might think it was. But the Scottish people did have a say in 2014 I appreciate a lot has happened since then but it's been the most volatile time with the independence referendum three general elections a Brexit referendum now a global pandemic 
does part of you think, I know we're in almost a position of maximum opportunity, but all sides deserve a time away from huge political campaigns like that? No, because uh, Brexit's coming down the down the line at us very fast. And most people are understandably so distracted by the current crisis, they've sort of forgotten about that. But it's my job as a politician not to forget about it. And because I'm on the Brexit Select Committee, or been renamed the Committee on the Future Relationship with the EU, you know, we, we took uh, evidence from... Uh, Mr. Frost and Mr. Gove this week. We've taken evidence from Gove two or three weeks ago. I mean, it's pretty clear that the, you know, the negotiations, time is running out and the negotiations are not at all well advanced. There's quite a significant impasse uh, between the UK and the EU. And most people would tell you that there's a very high probability that we'll be leaving the European Union, not leaving the European Union, exiting the transition period, leaving the single market and leaving the customs union at the end of this year without a proper agreement governing our relationship with the European Union going forward, uh, which um, will have a massive negative impacts on the, Scot- on the whole economy of the United Kingdom, but particularly in Scotland, losing freedom of movement is a particular problem for the Scottish economy and, and our society because of our demographics. So major constitutional change is coming you know, in 2014, when people voted no, when the majority voted no, the United Kingdom looked like quite a stable proposition. You know, I remember speaking at a debate during the independence referendum when I warned that if we lost the independence referendum, we faced being taken out of the European Union against our will and the repeal of the Human Rights Act. And I was ridiculed by certain lawyers in the audience, some of whom have written to me since to say, actually, you were right, I'm sorry, and some of whom I know have changed sides from no to yes. So I think a lot of people, and I'm not saying I was some great seer because I wasn't. These were things that were being discussed, certainly on the nationalist left in Scotland as possibilities. So my point is that the choice is not between turmoil, continued turmoil with an independence referendum and stability of the UK, because the UK is facing continued turmoil because of the leaving of the European Union. And anyone who thinks that we have a stable government looking at the antics over the last week really needs their head looked at. People on the other side would say the United Kingdom is more than just the government of the day, that it's something far more profound, that it's an economic and a social bond. And for all the uh, tumult that Brexit undoubtedly will cause, compounding that with Scottish independence, if you look at the, the, the chaos that leaving the European Union has caused, people would say, well, it'd be even more profound for Scotland to leave the UK. Yeah, Scotland the chaos, trades four the times more with, with, with the rest of the UK than the UK does with Europe. So if you're saying leaving one union causes all this upheaval, why does leaving another one not? Because the, the tumult and the chaos that has been part and parcel of Britain's experience of leaving the European Union has been created by the way in which the vote came about and the way in which the outcome was handled by the the Tory party. You know, the vote came about, the vote was brought about by people who had no plan whatsoever. And we, you know, uh, the vote, it was a very close vote. And Theresa May, rather than reaching out across the political divide and across the nations of the United Kingdom, rather than doing something to recognise the fact that Scotland had voted to remain and that Northern Ireland had voted to remain, proceeded as though she had a mandate uh, for her particular form of Brexit, which she tried to dress up as um, 
as a Brexit that would satisfy the Brexiteers. Of course, it wasn't. The wheels came off that wagon and they saw all with all the difficulties that ensued, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to, it doesn't have to be that way. So I don't accept that leaving a union should necessarily involve tumult. Well, Scotland wouldn't, Scotland, unlike the United Kingdom's plans at the moment, would not be heading into splendid isolation, very firmly our policy to, to reapply for membership of the European Union. And the more aligned Scotland remains with the European Union, the easier it will be and the quicker it will be for us to get back in. And that's another impetus towards holding an, an independence referendum sooner rather than, than later. Because if we are leaving the single market and the customs union at the end of this year without any kind of a deal, then clearly the, the risk of significant divergence is high. And certainly if you listen to what David Frost and um, uh, Michael Gove are saying, that's what they seem to want. A lot of people listening will have huge sympathy with the way that you describe the prospectus for Brexit before the referendum. People might also say, well, in 2014, you said you had a plan. It was oil and keep the pound. And now it looks like the parties ditched those. So in that regard, how is it any different to Brexit? A referendum forced by one side that wanted to leave, uh, whose policies have turned out to be reversed? Well, I think it is very different because the world has changed hugely since 2014. The challenges of uh, of climate change have been widely recognised, and as I said before, uh, it also it also you know I think it's a fallacy it's a fallacy to represent the 2014 campaign as being based wholly on uh, a Scotland having a, an oil based economy. But that was the you economic know, reassurance people, message, wasn't it? There was some reassurance there. There was some reassurance there. But, you know, the people who wrote the white paper, largely Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond, they were looking at the situation at the time. The white paper was published, I think, in 2012. We're nearly a decade on. We're in a very, very, very changed world. Political parties change their prospectuses to recognise change. The arguments remain that Scotland is capable of standing on its own two feet, that Scotland has a viable economy, that Scotland is surrounded by other small countries with viable economies in Western Europe and indeed further across Europe now. And there's really no reason why Scotland couldn't stand on its own two feet. And it would be much better that we should do so because then we'd be able to determine our own outcomes. I mean, people in Scotland repeatedly vote for political outcomes at Westminster level that aren't recognised. And it's very frustrating. And OK, we've got our devolved parliament, but it has limited powers. It doesn't have control over macroeconomic policy. Its borrowing powers are tiny, tiny, tiny and very, very limited. And, you know, that's something that, you know, left and right, nationalist and unionist has come into some degree of agreement uh, recently in really, uh, as a part of this crisis. And the borrowing powers of Hollywood will have to um, be increased. But, you know, I'm not really in the business of increasing a little bit here and a little bit there incrementally at Hollywood. I'm in the business of creating an independent parliament at Holyrood that has the whole basket of powers that an independent country has, but also is part of the European Union and so has that, you know, has that pan-European uh, approach to, um, to socioeconomic issues. So there can be some divergence within it. You know, we saw the EU recovery plan that's been published this week. Um, money that's being pumped into programmes that Scotland and the UK are leaving as a result of Brexit. You know, it's very frustrating when the majority of people in Scotland want to be part of those programmes that we're not able to be. 
I suppose both things are true. The majority of people in Scotland voted to stay in the European Union. They also voted to stay in the UK. And I wonder how positioning Scotland's values on the global stage is, is difficult for you as a party, because you're absolutely right to talk about Scotland's pro-Europeanism. But Scottish people, whether they're yes or no, left or right, SNP, Tory or Labour, do feel a social bond to the rest of the UK and not just England. How difficult is it for you to allay those fears that somehow you're breaking up this old friendship by by delivering independence? Well, I don't think you're breaking, I don't think you are breaking up a social union, but it's absolutely patent that the political union is not working to Scotland's benefit. Now, um, you know, the, the facts of geography are plain. We will, you know, we, were, we share a landmass with England and Wales. Ireland is very close. There will always be a commonality of interest. And I, I would like to see a body that recognised that. Alex Salmond had previously uh, suggested that perhaps you might want to beef up the Council of, of the Isles. But, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm never quite sure what that argument actually means. You know, as far as I'm concerned, it's possible to feel Scottish and British. I spent some time in Australia. I felt very British when I was in Australia. I even ended up supporting the English cricket team. So oh I the Australian God. approach towards sport. So nauseating, um, much as I love Australia and Australians. So, um, you know, I mean, and, you know, I'm half Irish as well. You know, I'm, I'm getting an Irish passport thanks to Brexit. So I think it's possible for people to have multiple identities. And I, I personally don't have any problem with... Um, desiring Scottish independence, but still feeling a British identity. You know, who could not feel a certain degree of proudness about the British identity when you mark the anniversary of Dunkirk and you see, you know, the incredible fortitude and bravery of of the people who took part, not just the the BEF, but also the people who who evacuated them. And, you know, that's something that, that we share and will always share. But... At the moment, being part of Britain as a political union, and not just at the moment, for some considerable time, has not been working to Scotland's benefit. And it's very starkly not working to Scotland's benefit now because of of Brexit. So um, I think reassurance can be given. I think, um, you know, the SNP has never been about blood and soil nationalism. Yeah, you know, I think your history and your history and your culture are important, and I would actually see the S. I'd like to see the SNP do more to recognise Scotland's history and culture because I think that's very healthy in a country. But ultimately, the goal is to have a is to is to determine our our own political destiny, and at the moment, we're simply unable to do that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I wonder, and I, I, I ask these questions about the politics of coming out of the coronavirus, not in a in a distasteful way, but just because there will be a yeah. political debate after all this, uh, as there is a political debate now about why the UK has such a high uh, mortality rate compared to other countries, about how, whether that's a result, a result not just of political decisions, but of underlying inequalities across the UK and, and how as a government, uh, how as a society, we, we challenge those things. And I just wonder, just thinking purely about Scottish independence, what, because on the face of it, you think, well, look, the Scottish government are way more popular than the UK government in Scotland. And and, and that seems yeah. to suggest that coming out of this, that might help the case for independence. But I wonder if things like the furlough scheme might make people feel bound a little or, or, or more, more emotionally um, grateful in a way to, to Rishi Sunak. And I think that's true of people across the UK, Scottish or otherwise, even however people identify that actually that felt like a really big deal for the Tory party to effectively pay people's wages. And I wonder if that will have an effect on any future independence debate. Well, it's, it's interesting because I've been, like a lot of parliamentarians who are stuck at home, I've been taking part in various webinars and Zoom meetings with a variety of different think tanks and organisations and cross-party groupings to discuss how we come out of this crisis. And, you know, this hashtag's going around Build Back Better. We don't necessarily want to go back to where we were before. And I wouldn't like to see us... Um, I think I think I think there's a very real risk that you could spend a lot of money and throw a lot of money at the situation trying to take us back to where we were before the crisis rather than actually saying no 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 that's not where we want to go back to we want to go forward to something a bit different and this is an opportunity because of this terrible crisis we have an opportunity to effect change and to do something radical, and we shouldn't go backwards because where we where we were was not a sustainable place. And you know, I've had really interesting conversations about this with people from the Green Party and people from the Labour Party, and people in my own party, and unaligned people. But my feeling is that this is all very interesting, uh, but I see absolutely no appetite. Um, to approach matters in that way by the Conservative government. Now, clearly, this is, you know, the last few months have involved some very unusual actions by <laughs> Conservative government. You know, a policy built round protecting the NHS. Who thought that would come from um, a Conservative government? And huge injection of money by Mr Sunak. And I think, you know, I think he's come out quite well from the crisis in, in, into... Um, the furlough scheme. But, you know, Britain's not the only country in the world that's had self-sufficient support schemes. There are small countries not very far from here that have their own self-sufficient support schemes, such as Denmark and the Republic of Ireland. So it's not a it's not a peculiarly British thing. And it's also not because Mr Sunak has some pot of money buried in the garden or has found the magic money tree that Theresa May said didn't exist. Because like every like every other country in the world that's faced this onslaught, he's borrowing. And you know, debt's going to be everyone's debt's going to be vastly increased. And, and that will include small nations across Europe and the world, as well 
as bigger states like the United Kingdom. So I think, you know, let's see what happens as the year progresses. But I don't see this Conservative government doing anything terribly radical. I think they will try to steer us through the worst of it and then we'll be back to business as usual. And of course, the huge fear is that we will be back to an austerity style approach. Boris Johnson will try and call it something different because he doesn't want to be associated with George Osborne and austerity. But we'll find ourselves in a situation where the poorest people in society come out worse and where the people at the top, the high earners, seem relatively untouched by the crisis. And so this, this is an opportunity to do it differently. And I think we've got a hell of a lot more chance of doing things differently in Scotland um, with independence than we have if, if we stay um, a part of uh, the United Kingdom. You know, And, you know, Scots are often promised at elections by the Labour Party, everything will be fine if you vote Labour, we just need a Labour government. We've been waiting quite a long time for another Labour government now. And Labour had a pretty major disaster at the last... Um, election. Now I know Labour have got themselves a very impressive new leader and uh, you know I'm, I like Keir Starmer, I think he's a really decent guy and I have a lot of respect for him and he's doing a great job at PNQs but he doesn't understand Scotland and you know he's promised federalism again but he hasn't given any indication of what he means by that. I mean really you know what I would say to Keir if he didn't have his hands full with the crisis is do you think our heads zip up the back? You know we've been promised federalism so many times by Labour leaders we really, we're really quite far beyond that now. The debate is located quite far beyond that. He does represent a different challenge, though, doesn't he? I mean, Jeremy Corbyn didn't represent any sort of challenge to either the Westminster or the Holyrood government. And and uh, your assessment of Keir Starmer might be at the moment his his antenna isn't too sharp with Scotland. That may change, uh, in your opinion. I mean, do you think actually now with Labour having a far more formidable leader? You think, well, that might change the game in Scotland as well if he starts coming after the, the Holyrood I don't government. think so. Because I don't think so. I don't think so. Because, for example, uh, Keir has obviously formed the view that Labour pretty much have to sign up to Brexit now. You know, he's not, he has not um, joined in the cross-party calls for an extension to the uh, transition uh, period. And so his direction of travel in relation to that does not reflect the wishes of the majority in Scotland. That opinion poll I mentioned earlier said that two thirds of uh, people in Scotland want an extension of up to two years of that transition period. Um, and also, I think, you know, the Scottish Labour Party in Scotland is, is very moribund and very much in decline. And, you know, I'm not there are good people in it. There are some able Labour politicians in Scotland. Um, but uh, their organisation on the ground is not what it was. And uh, we very much replaced them as the party of the centre left in Scotland. And I think it's going to be very hard for them to get ground back there. Plus, you know, the, the focus of the SNP going forward is not going to be Westminster. You know, in the last parliament, we had a really big role to play because it was a hung parliament. And although we had less MPs than we have now, we had far more influence. And we were very, many of us were very proactive in cross-party coalitions that tried that supported a people's vote, the prorogation case, um, the harrying of Theresa May's government and Boris Johnson's. Um, you know, there was a lot of cross-party working went on in tactical discussions in groups that involved SNP MPs as well as Tory rebels and, and Labour and Lib Dems and and, uh, and Caroline Lucas from the Greens. So, um, but that's over now. And you know, we won the election in Scotland. By a country mile, we've got 48 out of the 59 MPs. 
but it's going to be just like 2000, the 2015 Parliament, where we didn't get a single one of our amendments to the Scotland Act accepted. So we can't win. You know, Boris Johnson has a huge majority um, based on his wins in English constituencies. And we're not going to sit around for the next four and a half years. People in Scotland, SNP obviously, but I don't think the Scots are going to sit around for four and a half years hoping that Keir might become Prime Minister. Um, it's, it's kind of beyond that because by then Brexit will have happened and the, you know, well, Brexit has happened but we will have left the single market and the customs union will be well down the road to divergence you know, Labour Party seems to support getting rid of freedom of movement now you know, overwhelmingly opposed by Scots you know, and I don't just mean the political parties I mean the universities, business the third sector, everyone's against getting rid of freedom of movement so I don't think you know, hear me well, and I hope I wish him well in England. I really do, but I don't think his direction of travel fits with Scotland's direction of travel. So, um, and I, I, you know, I think you'll you maybe you won't hear less of the SNP at Westminster. We'll still be noisy, but the focus of our of our struggle going forward has to be Holyrood. And and your personal focus. Uh seems to be Holyrood as well. You're going to stand uh, to be the candidate in Edinburgh Central in the uh, Holyrood elections next year. You currently represent Edinburgh Southwest in Westminster. And you said you'll, you'll give up that seat if you, if you win this election and if you get elected uh, to to the Scottish. I said Parliament. I would give up that. I, I would give up the seat if I got elected to the Scottish Parliament, not if I win this election. Okay, so if you if you get selected and don't win, you you remain as the MP for for Edinburgh Southwest. That. That battle in 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 Edinburgh Central um, being characterised as you uh, and Angus Robertson are both going for the seat, two huge figures uh, in in the Scottish National Party, as you know, will be characterised as effectively Alex Salmond versus Nicola Sturgeon, and you're the proxy for Alex Salmond, and, and Angus Robertson's the proxy but, for Nicola but, Sturgeon. If it's characterised in that way, it'll be wrongly characterised. And it's a very uh, simplistic analysis of SNP politics to say we're all Salmonistas or Sturgeonistas. And it, I get really annoyed about that. You know, I, I have a lot of admiration for Alex Salmond. He is a personal friend. He's an extremely loyal friend. And five years in politics for me has been a pretty rough ride. I've had some very unpleasant experiences. And generally speaking, I find that Alex Salmond is the first person to pick up the phone and offer support from my party when others strangely fail to do so. So I have a lot of time for Alec as, as, a, as, a, loyal, um, as a loyal friend. But, you know, <laughs> uh, I find it really quite patronising and a bit sexist to say that I am just a salmon's proxy. If anyone looks at my record over the last five years in politics, they will see that I pretty much do my own thing. I've had very much my own focus, my own campaigns, very instrumental in the cross-party working to keep the Human Rights Act and the prorogation case. Those weren't Alex Salmon's ideas. Those were my ideas. Those are the things, the ideas that I wanted to push forward. Um, equally, um, you know, I don't know. You'd have to ask Angus whether he is a Salmon person or a Sturgeon person. He certainly worked very closely with Alec um, and also with So I think it's irritating. It's absolutely the fact that the SNP has been fortunate in having two extremely strong, well-respected and popular leaders back to back, that people will be associated with one or uh, the other. But it's not a personality contest. You know, 
if, if Angus and I go head to head and the whole selection process is up in the air just now, it's been suspended because of the coronavirus crisis. But if Angus and I go head to head, to head for the central uh, nomination, then so far as I'm concerned, I can't speak for Angus, but so far as I'm concerned, I would want it to be a battle of ideas, not a battle of personalities. And, you know, I have some pretty firm ideas about how we move closer to NDREF2 and about the sort of policies we should be taking forward and about the importance of structured policymaking in the party. And it's those ideas that I'll be putting to the membership in Edinburgh Central. I mean, it's my home branch. I'm sitting here. I live in Edinburgh Central. Edinburgh Southwest cover, you know, quite a significant chunk of Edinburgh Central is in Edinburgh Southwest. So it's the place I've lived most of my life. And I know it really well. And it's the place, it's the branch of which I've been a member since I joined the SNP. And so, um, you know, it's my it's my home patch. And, you know, I know it well. And uh, I have to say also, I, my, I and my staff deal with a lot of the constituency work for Edinburgh Central because Ruth Davidson, while she has a high profile, doesn't hold surgeries or bother herself too greatly with menial issues such as dealing with her constituency casework. So me and my staff deal with a lot of constituency casework in relation to devolved matters in the part of Edinburgh Central that my constituency covers. So I'm very well aware of, of what of what the issues are uh, in, in the constituency and in the city centre. Um, so I mean really I think I think I think it would be healthy if other MPs stood and I understand that there are other, are other MPs who are intending to run for Hollywood seats, so it'll be interesting to see who they are as the year um, progresses. But you know, the focus uh, going forward has to be Hollywood. And I didn't leave my legal career and come into politics to be in opposition forever. And the SNP is never going to form a government of Westminster ever. You know, for, even if Scotland decides it wants to remain part of the United Kingdom, we're never going to be. Well, I suppose we might conceivably one day be in a coalition, but. You know, the direction of travel, judging from the opinion polls, is very much towards independence. So I would like to be um, in Holyrood or uh, where I could be form part of a government. And maybe not just form part of a government, but, but lead a government one day. Well, I'll never say never. But, you know, rumours that I'm intending to challenge Nicola Sturgeon uh, for leader of the party are incorrect. I have no intention of doing that. Um, I would like to try and um, become a member of the Scottish Parliament and I would like to be part of the leadership of the party going forward. The leadership of the party should, in my view, be a collegiate process and we should be looking at how we take things forward in a collaborative fashion. But yeah, I'm not saying I would I would rule it out in the long run, but there is no vacancy at the moment. Uh, the First Minister is riding high um, and has, re- has received a lot of praise for the way that she's handled um, the crisis. And so, uh, you know, I'm not about challenging Nicola, but Nicola won't be leader of the party forever, and I'm not going to rule out that that's something I might think about one day, but not in the immediate future. And you mentioned your friendship with Alex Salmond. How difficult has it been to be a friend of his and, and, and to effectively publicly support him in the last couple of years particularly? Well, it's not been easy. Um, I mean, I was brought up that you stand by your friends when they're in trouble. You know, you don't disappear at the first hint of trouble. Um, I said publicly when Alec was charged that he had, um, he he was pleading not guilty. Um, and uh, I trusted in the Scottish 
a legal system to produce a just result. And in my opinion, it did because uh, the jury found him not guilty. And I believe that he wasn't guilty. And as I said in the statement I issued at the time, there are some very serious question marks over the way in which the initial investigation to him was pursued. And I'm afraid to say also, particularly because of some of the evidence that came out of the trial and some other evidence that isn't yet in the public domain, some question marks over how the SNP handled matters. And um, I think that in due course, when this crisis is over, those matters need to be ventilated. Now, there's going to be an inquiry at Holyrood. There's already a committee of inquiry set up. And that's nothing to do with Mr. Salmond getting his revenge. That's because um, the Parliament has decided to set up a committee to inquire into the way that the initial investigation was handled by the civil service and the Scottish government. And uh, I've, I'm on the record as saying that I would like to see an, uh, an independent inquiry into the way in which the SNP handled some of the complaints. And, um, you know, I mean, I didn't stand by Alec lightly. I stood by him because he was my friend. I received some flack uh, because it seemed to be assumed that I, as a feminist, should immediately assume that he was guilty and treat him as a pariah. But, you know... I spent three years as a specialist sex crimes prosecutor. I prosecuted many rape and sexual offences cases. And so I kind of know what I'm talking about. And um, I believe strongly and passionately that those who complain, particularly women, um, who complain that they've been sexually assaulted, must be supported to give their best evidence in court and uh, must be taken seriously. But I also believe very strongly in the presumption of innocence and um, as it turned out the jury who heard all the evidence and much of the reporting has been somewhat skewed and has ignored the defence evidence uh, the jury who heard all the evidence including a, a string of defence witnesses um, uh, civil servants and uh, former party workers who spoke up in Mr Salmon's defence the jury heard all of that and they found him not guilty and I find it very exasperating when that outcome is treated as something that can be ignored and, and commentators think they can substitute their, their personal opinion for the verdict of, of the jury. Funny. The, rule of law, the rule of law is really important and everybody deserves equal treatment about before the law. And, you know, that's what this whole Cummings stushy is about at the moment. People feel that Dominic Cummings is a, has been above the law, the very law that his government devised, the government he advises devised, and he hasn't received equal treatment. And I personally think they're right about that. Now, whether you love or loathe Alex Salmond should be relevant to your desire to see him be have the benefit of the presumption of innocence, to be treated equally before the law, and for the verdict of the jury to be respected. But I suppose, as with the Cummings case, it's not necessarily whether the law has been broken, but whether people do things that morally people might not expect of, of anyone, particularly in positions of influence. And I, and I think that's perhaps where some concerns. Yes, but you're assuming that some of the commentariat's conclusion that Alex Salmond was not guilty of any criminality but was a sex pest is correct. That's actually defamatory. There's no evidence. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying that people might... <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not saying... I'm not saying that you... But Gordon Jackson's own defence was basically is no angel. You know, that it, it, that's tricky for people. Gordon, Jack, Gordon Jackson made a very serious error by what he was recorded as, by saying what he said on the train to Glasgow, both in relation to revealing the name of two complainers, and I strongly believe that complainers' identities should be protected, 
and also in slagging off his own client. It's really not the done thing, and there will be consequences for that. But I think that Jackson probably thinks that he was uh, misrepresented in what he said on the train in relation to Mr. Salmon. So I'm calling him Jackson because that's what we all called him at the bar. It's not a pejorative. That's just how he's known. Um, And I think the way in which he conducted the defence has been misrepresented. Um, In no way did he ever say that Mr. Salmon had engaged in non-consensual activity. People need to remember that. Now, I don't really want to get into the ins and outs of this just now because Alec himself has said this is really for after the coronavirus crisis. But I'll just say that as a lawyer and somebody who believes in the rule of law, I found it really annoying how many commentators have been writing pieces and opining on podcasts, basically, that they really their view of the matter should replace that of the juries. And I think that's really dangerous. I'd say to them, how would they feel if they were wrongfully accused and acquitted? And people went around saying yes, but they really did it anyway. It just wasn't criminal. Finally, as, as we've uh, established, Edinburgh is very close to your heart. You've spent a lot of your life there. You represent a, a huge part of it. The Edinburgh Festival isn't going ahead this summer. I, um, how grateful are you that you'll be able to travel around and not have to walk past drama students from across the UK <laughs> flying you on the Royal Mile? I'm not grateful. I'm really upset about it. I mean, I love the Edinburgh Festival. It's something that I, some of my earliest memories are going to festival events with my parents who were great festival goers when when they were young. And um, it creates the most incredible atmosphere across the city. It's an incredible boon for Edinburgh's economy and the whole of the Scottish economy. I won't pretend that there haven't been occasions when I have cursed going down the Royal Mile, particularly when I was at the bar because the courts, the Advocates Library and the courts are up beside St Giles and then the Advocates Consulting Rooms were just down past the fringe office. So I quite often find myself in the past struggling from the Advocates Library to the Consulting Rooms, carrying a mountain of lever arch files with people thrusting leaflets at me when I didn't have a hand. So I'm not saying that I haven't on occasion behaved like a typical Edinburgh person and been a bit cross about that. But I see I see no benefit to the city in the festival being cancelled. It's it's a huge sadness for everyone. Oh, it's heartbreaking. I mean, I what's you know, I've been coming to the Edinburgh Festival for years and years and years. Now, if I tot it up, I've lived in Edinburgh for more than a year of my life because I've been there every month for God knows how long, every year for a month. <laughs> um, but the moment I get there, I then start complaining like I'm a local, like oh, I can't get a seat yeah. at, at Bar Napoli anymore, the traffic on the miles and I'm like, I'm part of the problem. And yet there's part yeah, of me that, that will always feel like I come from Edinburgh. Uh, yeah, well, you know, you're welcome to feel that you're from Edinburgh. Edinburgh would be not the same place without the Edinburgh Festival. And it's going to be sad not having it. But I think all the energy has to go into keeping the arts alive in Scotland and, in, you know, and indeed across the UK during this period and building towards bringing the festival back next year. I hope so. I, I really miss it. It's on the, it's at the top of my list, uh, along with Nottingham and Glasgow, for places to go when I can finally move around again. It's such a stunning place. It must have been an amazing place to grow up. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, it's funny you sort of take it for granted, don't you? Um, although my parents, both, my, neither of my parents are Edinburgh people. My mum's from the west of Ireland. Um, my dad's from Glasgow, but but grew up in London. So um, I think, you know, they were both people who came to Edinburgh and fell in love with Edinburgh. And so I was brought up in a household that was very much, 
celebrated how wonderful it was to live in Edinburgh. I mean, you know, my mum always says she tried really hard not to indoctrinate her children to be Irish nationalists and they've turned it out, out to be Scottish nationalists instead. Uh, although I will say I'm a bit of an Irish nationalist as well, but I maybe have to just say that to make sure I get my passport, but it's true as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is a great city to live in. Um, but, you know, London's a great city as well. Uh, you know, I, much as I want to see an independent Scotland, I have enjoyed the time I've had in London while I've been at Westminster and um, I'll miss it when I go. You'll still be able to visit. There'll be a passport check at a hard border, but um, after after a few hours of uh, pleading, I'm sure they'll let you back in, Joanna. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, there you go, Joanna Cherry. You get the sense when you talk to people from all parties at the moment that they all know that this crisis can have huge implications for whatever their particular politics are and and obviously just for the country anyway and for the world about how we deal with all this do we go through another round of austerity what does the Tory party think of that let alone Labour the SNP and the Lib Dems where do they all stand on public borrowing and what what are the implications for things like Scottish independence does this crisis make it more likely or less likely would it make setting up an independent Scotland easier or harder what decisions would have to be taken as a result of this crisis that would be different to the decisions that would have to be taken uh, without it. So it's just fascinating to think about the political implications and how far into the future they might reach. Uh, And it was brilliant talking to Joanna about her own view about the future direction of the party and of the country. Um, And again, as she says, the, the discussion around a hard border is something that Brexit brings to a future independence referendum should it happen that the previous referendum wouldn't have had so it's 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 also about knowing that any future like general elections you're never you know you're not you shouldn't try and rerun the previous one you have to think about what the prospectus is next time and whether you agree with any of these causes or not that's what make makes politics one of the things that makes politics so exciting is thinking about what are the challenges that happen next time rather than obviously you learn from history but what is the next challenge how do you move on to it and how do you overcome it so who knows what happens uh, in the future don't forget you can email the show political party podcast at gmail.com thank you to all of those of you um who do and it's lovely to hear um about uh where you uh listen um and guest suggestions uh, some of whom i have um approach so more news on that uh, in the future um matthew isom of i hope i've pronounced your name i hope i've pronounced your name right uh, uh matthew um he was just listening to the james graham episode and wasn't that brilliant and by the way i hope you watched this house um you can watch it on youtube now it's available for free um uh, the national theater's version of uh sorry not their version there's it was a national theater production uh, of this house um uh, but Matthew uh, enjoyed that, um, and I did as well. I, I just thought James was superb, and obviously, I, as I'm sure many of you are, fans of his work, so really cool to have him on the show. And brilliant to talk to Joanna Cherry today. So email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Um, and don't forget, please, and I know I ask all the time, and thank you to those of you that have done it. You must get so sick of this. But if you could just find a second to take out, to take out of your crowded day 
to leave an iTunes review, it would be hugely, hugely appreciated because it helps get the podcast up the charts, which means more people can listen to these interviews. And I just think it's great getting to talk to politicians from all parties, really clever people with vastly different life experience, different views on what the future should look like. But they give their time and they talk to me, which I'm very grateful for. You get the benefit of their knowledge and experience and expertise, and it helps us all understand politics and politicians a bit better. Um, So to give a bit back, just, just leave a nice iTunes review and we can all move on. Thank you very much. I'll see you soon. Um, Stay as sane and as happy and as well as you possibly can. And uh, yeah, see you soon. Ta-ra. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.